Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So the op-ed I wrote today and published over at HartmanReport.com was titled The GOP's Dark Death Plot to Win Elections. And basically, you know, I've, I've been talking about this for some time on the air, but I wanted to put it down on paper so that, you know, people could read it and share it with others and just be very, very clear with it that authoritarian Trump followers are actively promoting death and disease among Americans to win elections. And that kind of brutality and cynicism, in my opinion, is absolutely breathtaking. I talked yesterday in some detail about, you know, strategy number one that the Republicans have been employing since 1980, since Paul Weyrich's speech in that Dallas church about how I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by the majority of people. They never have been. You know, our leverage in the elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. Okay, we talked about that yesterday. And Governor Ducey did that in Arizona, throwing 140,000 voters, including 30,000 Latinos, off the voting rolls. But the second and most evil part of their strategy, at least evil in the context of human life, <laughs> you know, has to do with the coronavirus. And their logic goes something like this. Number one, convince enough Americans not to get vaccinated that the country never reaches herd immunity and therefore President Joe Biden can never get the virus under control. Number one. Number two, the failure of Biden to control the virus will mean like what happened to Trump, that the economy will not get back to full functioning either. Number three, as any first year political science student can tell you, the big, biggest single variable in most elections is, especially federal elections, is the economy. So if Republicans can keep the economy off balance by keeping the virus circulating, They'll have a much better chance of winning elections in 2022 and 2024. All they have to do is run ads complaining about the Biden economy. And if they can crash the stock market in the process, they get double bonus points. I mean, this strategy has been aggressively supported by right-wing media. It's why about half the Republicans in the U.S. Congress, and mostly in the House of Representatives, refuse to say whether they're vaccinated or not. 
It's why Trump and Melania took their vaccines in secret when they were in the White House. Tucker Carlson, who refuses to tell us whether he's vaccinated or not, has been asking questions about people who died after getting vaccinated. Similar lies being pushed by Ron Johnson. People are not dying after they've been vaccinated. I mean, people die and say, you know, across America, it happens. People die after they eat mashed potatoes. Not because of the mashed potatoes, but hey, you know, somebody's, somebody dies on Thursday. What did they do on Tuesday? Oh, they had mashed potatoes. That must be the cause. Oh, they got their vaccine on Tuesday. No. And you've got these right-wingers and conspiracy nuts on radio, on television, across the internet, on Fox News, spreading these freakouts about the vaccine. You know, Bill Gates is putting tracking chips in them so he knows where you are all the time. Don't tell him about cell phones and GPS. mRNA vaccines are going to alter your DNA and turn you into a zombie. Right. Or a mutant. Or maybe make you a liberal. More than one Republican senator was trying to just produce a Fox-worthy clip, as in worthy of being on Fox News, not Jeff, uh, <laughs> saying, well, we don't need vaccines. We're already immune, right? Well, Fauci already shot that one down. Even if you've already had the wild variant of COVID, you can still get the South African variant. And apparently you can still get the Indian variant because they share a lot of the same mutations. And you can still die from them, even if you've had the disease. The vaccines, on the other hand, give you a significant level of protection, not 100%, but a significant level of protection against these variants. And then you get this thing where Rand Paul was trying to promote this idea that somehow Fauci was involved in this program with the Chinese to create nasty weapon viruses years ago. What he's trying to do, what Rand Paul is trying to do, basically, is discredit Anthony Fauci and Joe Biden's entire public health team. Now, why would he want to do that? Because if you can keep the virus circulating, you can keep the economy soft. If you can keep the economy soft, then you get reelected. Stock market's going to crash. You mark my words. Well, yeah, stock markets go up and down. Is that going to drive the economy, though? Is the economy going to get better or worse? A lot of that is going to depend on whether or not we can deal with this virus. I mean, we're now down below 30,000 people a day getting infected. We're below 400 people a day dying. Compare that to when Trump was president, when we were getting 200,000 people a day infected and 3,000 people a day dying. I I mean, no matter how hard Rand Paul and his uh, Republican colleagues try, we're not going to get back to those terrible numbers, but they can if they can convince a large enough chunk of Republican followers, of Fox News followers, of right-wing hate radio followers to be afraid of or skeptical of the vaccine, they can keep those people getting sick, dropping out of the workplace. They can keep other people afraid of going into workplaces or into uh, you know, retail venues where, the, where these mask holes might be hanging out. 
and they can keep the economy disrupted. And the, as long as they can keep the economy disrupted, they can use it as a wedge issue and they can say, hey, you know, what did Joe Biden do for you? We had Liz Cheney ousted. I know I've got a bunch of calls on that. We'll pick that up in just a second. And we saw this performance by Rand Paul, you know, with Anthony Fauci and a few other Republicans. Basically trying to promote this idea that, eh, you know, there's something weird going on here. Don't trust the, the Biden public health team. Don't trust the vaccine. That, I mean, this is their sales pitch. And they're doing it to try to win elections. Which is the, the most craven. I mean, you've got these two strategies. Number one, screw up the economy and screw up the administration with the disease that kills people to win the election. And number two, change the laws in those states where you have the ability to change the law so that you don't even have to count the votes of people who vote Democratic. So that in Georgia, they can look at Fulton County and say, you know, there were 150,000 votes for the Democrats, but, you know, we have some suspicions about those votes. So we're only going to count 60,000 of them, which, by the way, bingo, hey, means the Republicans are in charge now. The Confederacy is hanging on by its teeth. It has been fighting for its lost cause since, since the failure of Reconstruction with the uh, Tilden-Hayes election of 1876. When the political parties got together, the white people in the political parties got together and decided that they would stab black people in the back, both metaphorically, politically, and in some cases even literally and end Reconstruction and cut the Confederates some slack. Just like the Republican Party today is cutting Donald Trump some slack. And, you know, we didn't resolve the Confederate problem. In fact, we ended up with Confederate statues in the 1920s. I'm very concerned we're not going to solve this one either. This is the Tom Hartman Program. If we don't put this, the whole, this whole conspiracy theory down clearly, if truth doesn't prevail, we're in big trouble. Zach in North Hollywood, California. Hey, Zach, what's up? Morning, Tom. Yeah, the uh, gullible dumb have been made to believe something, and they're, they're blaming the wrong side for what they've been trained to blame the left for what the right's been doing to them. Anyway, uh, specifically, well, all of it, but you know, the, the white power killer conservatives, they call them now, have become ham handed and desperate. And people can see right through their weak attempts at hanging on to power. And they've been reduced to a minority of two factions, which in reality, I think, are probably about 20% of the voters, made to look like 40% by the slant media. And those two factions are the manipulating, subsidized, and overly comfortable rich and the gullible dumb that they pander to. The uninformed yeah. that drink yeah. and ingest the rubbish that they sell every day of the week. And that's really what they have to realize. They're mad at the wrong side. And I think we better start identifying as the radical center. I haven't been call myself a liberal in five years at least. Liberal is a Republican word. We have to remember that. The left, liberal, that's all developed 
they're semantics geniuses, these guys. And we've got to start seeing through the semantics. Yeah. I don't think that we need to relanguage ourselves, Zach. I don't think it's possible. And I think that just like Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich made the word conservative acceptable again. I mean, it actually, the word conservative from Barry Goldwater's defeat in 64 all the way up until the mid-90s, early 2000s, but particularly the mid-90s, the word conservative was a word that Republicans were afraid to use because it harkened back to Barry Goldwater. You know, we went through that with liberal and progressive from the 90s, from the Clinton election, you know, arguably through the end of the Obama presidency. And I think that those words have regained their potency. And I don't care, frankly, what Republicans think about it. And I don't think that for most swing voters, there may be a very small percentage of Americans. I've seen numbers that suggest it's probably in the neighborhood of four to 10 percent of Americans who kind of make up their mind at the last minute and don't really pay attention to the news and they just go with whoever's got the best ads and all that kind of thing. And sometimes they do swing elections because they're just like the ones that are most easy, the easiest to influence at the last minute and and you dump all this money in the last month or so. But most of these people who identify themselves as independents are actually either Republicans or Democrats. Most of them are actually Republicans these days. And during the time that it was embarrassing to be a liberal, they were Democrats. But I don't think that they're up for grabs. And, also, and I don't think that we have to worry. Also, we well, socialism is another word. Social- yeah, I'm socialism sorry. is a word that I don't think Democrats should be, should be using, frankly. And they're not. And, you know, it's, socialism it's, or bottom-up socialism? Which one do you want? I mean, it's, we've been doing this for a long time yeah. already, you know? I think the way to use the word socialism is to always follow it with three words, for the rich, and then use that to describe, you know, so many of the policies that the GOP is promoting and just kind of turn it around on them. Zach, I got to run, but thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. Judd Legum is on the line with us. He publishes this extraordinary newsletter. We've profiled it before. Popular.info is the website for it. Judd's Twitter handle is at Judd Legum. L-E-G-U-M. And Judd, welcome back to the program. I understand that you have been on this story for quite some time and just doing a spectacular job of it about how these corporations initially after January 6th were saying, oh my God, it was an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. We've got 147 members of Congress who are basically you know, supporting treason. We can't send money to them anymore. Things are changing though, I understand. Yeah, and this is something I've been hearing about through the grapevine for a while, but I got my hands on some video and some other documents from a group called the National Association of Business PACs, which, believe it or not, is actually a trade association for corporate PACs, where they get together and talk about what they'd like to do. And in March, there was a webinar, which I was able to review, where very candidly, with the help of a former uh, Republican operative and crisis communication consultants, they walk through 
the strategy of how, if you've previously said that you're going to suspend your donations to these Republicans who voted to overturn the election, how you can restart and kind of deal with any fallout or pushback. So it was a very candid conversation about, you know, just just exactly how to go about this process and really encouraging them to do so. Yeah, and what I got out of both reading your newsletter, which I subscribed to, and listening to the audio, was that essentially what they were saying, what these crisis managers and whatnot were saying, was kind of the old, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, rip the scab off kind of thing and just get it done with right away. That if you just jump in and, you know, go back to making the donations and uh, somebody hassles you about it, say, yeah, we just decided to make a change, you'll have one day of bad news cycle. It will then pass. Everybody will forget. Your investors won't care. In fact, they'll be happy that you're now bribing the appropriate politicians to get the things, you know, the tax breaks and things that you want, deregulation that you want. And so uh, just, you know, rock and roll here. And number one, am I characterizing that accurately? I realize rather, you know, my, my language might not be exactly what they said. But And number two, are we seeing these corporations actually start to support the traders again? I mean, this is a pretty amazing thing when you think about it that these companies for about a month or two or three actually, that these companies took what appeared to be for a while a principled stand. Yes, we are going to fight this. We are going to speak up for democracy. And then, not so much. So are these companies now following this advice that they should just get back right. into the game? Well, I think you got the general thrust right, Tom. But yes, what we've seen so far, we've seen one quarter of campaign finance returns since the insurrection on January 6th. And in that first quarter, we really didn't see too many companies start to give money back to the group of the 147. Mm-hmm. There were some exceptions. Cigna was an exception. T-Mobile was an exception. There were a couple of exceptions, but if you look at the broad swath, there's about 1,100 of these corporate PACs, only a couple of dozen, most of whom you wouldn't have even heard of, resumed. But, and this is also in the documents that I got from this corporate PAC trade association, they did an internal survey. And in the internal survey, it said that of the companies that paused, about half were planning. Now, this may be wishful thinking on behalf of the Trade Association, but this is what they say the survey said. About half were planning on resuming donations after the first quarter. So, Which which we're well into now, the first quarter ending ending in the end of March. Ending in the end of March, but we we haven't yet seen it really any campaign finance reports from that period of time. So we're not going to have a full picture of what's going on until probably the summer, although we'll start to get little bits each month, but only everyone has to file it in the middle of the summer. That's when we'll really know. So I think you're likely to see a lot more companies at least try to dip their toe in. Is there any indication, Judd, that some of these companies, you know, Liz Cheney has just staked her flag in the ground and she's not going away and she's going to continue speaking out. You've got 100 Republicans on the one hand who have just come out, former senior administration officials and Republican officials and elected officials coming out and saying, we've got to stop the big lie. We've got to reject Trumpism. We've got to move forward as a party. And then on the other hand, you've got 124 retired military 
coming out and saying that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. We need to follow Donald Trump right into the insurrection void. Do you see that kind of cleavage happening with these companies? Are there going to be companies that are going to start supporting Cheney and the, shall we call them classical Republicans, and others that are going to be supporting the Trumpy Republicans? Or are they just trying to be totally apolitical? We don't care what your politics are, just so long as you vote for our tax breaks and our deregulation. Yeah, I think this is mostly about power. I think that most companies would like to stay out of this. Certainly, you've seen more people in the first quarter donate to Republicans like Cheney because there were a bunch of companies that hadn't pledged to cut them off because Cheney didn't vote Mm -hmm. to set aside the election results. But my sense is, and it was really confirmed by looking at this video and these documents, is that what this is about is access. So you, you put this money in, and it's one of the things in their toolkit to get a relationship with that member of Congress. There you go. And if you want to read the whole story, it's all over at popular.info, Judd Legum's newsletter. Judd, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Thanks. Yeah, keep up the great work, too. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. What are all the pieces that you're seeing here? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up? Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I just wanted to talk about, I guess, you know, I'm just going to say this bluntly, that Trump would have done us a favor if he would have died of coronavirus last year, especially with what happened with the insurrection on January 6th. He would have done us all a favor if we quote last year, because he's been very toxic to the Republican Party and to democracy in general. He's a little Hitler in making. I just think 
that the media needs to wake up to the fact, and most people need to wake up to the fact that we're almost like Turkey. We almost had a coup d'etat, you know, or also going for whatever we want to call it on January 6th. And we need to take this threat by Donald Trump seriously and not blow it off as, oh, the, the ravings of a crazy person because this crazy person is in charge of the Republican Party. It's just I, I just I never thought that would ever happen, that a loser president would still, even though he's talked to Republicans and lost them the midterms, and the presidency and the Georgia special election. Why are the Republicans still clinging on to him, especially with the whole polling data that they have that Liz Cheney, I guess, is acting upon that and saying, we need to distance ourselves from Trump. I don't get it. But that was their opportunity to go, oh, man, Trump's a loser. He's toxic. Let's dump, you know, dump him yeah. in the river. Why, why are they still going with him? I don't get it. Well, because the base is still with him and the base is still with him because right wing media is still with him. We have right wing media in this country that is basically fascistic, that does not believe in democracy, that is doing every and has been for years doing everything it can to sabotage democracy in the United States. They don't believe in the American way of life. They want to see America turned into Hungary or Russia or a country, you know, the Philippines, whatever, you know, pick your authoritarian country. They are themselves authoritarians. You know, Rupert Murdoch has done everything he can to damage d democracy in Australia, in the United Kingdom, and now in the U.S., and he's been very, very successful. He's been called out by Malcolm Turnbull. He's been called out by Kevin Rudd, two former prime ministers, a conservative and a progressive, essentially, you know, to use our language. But it continues. And it's obviously it's not just the Murdoch family. It's also we have a whole series of these people. So anyway, Dan in Newark, New Jersey, it says you disagree with me, Dan. Uh, tell me what you disagree about. The virus? I read you're a great writer. I always enjoy reading your stuff, by the way. But this time but, I have to disagree with you. Okay. I, I have to disagree with you because you were saying about the coronavirus that the Republicans are using it to beat down the economy at the present, if I understood it right. Yeah. That's pretty much, if you follow the last election, the presidential one, if you watch CNN every day, they had a death count on a TV every day. Mm -hmm. So I guess mm -hmm. what, what I don't understand is you're accusing them, and believe me, I voted for Biden whether you want to believe me or not because I got tired of all the nonsense. But you're accusing them of, of doing exactly what the Democrats did in the last election. Do you see I'm that accusing whom of doing what? The CNN you're was keeping track of the deaths because the deaths were increasing. We were we were number one in the world in deaths. We still are. And, you know, India is starting to catch up with us now. But, but, but and, that's and, all I saw on the election, Tom, was, was coronavirus. There's coronavirus. That's, that's because that's I, what was going on. That's because for months Trump had been trying to push people back to work trying to essentially, in, in some cases, even he used the Defense Production Act to force meat packers back to work. He was trying to get people back to work because he was trying to get the economy back to normal so that he could run on a successful economy. He, did, he wasn't able to pull it off. But in the process, if you look at that huge bulge of deaths and infections in the United States in September, October, November, December, and January, that was all Trump pushing as hard as he could to get people back into the workplace, uh, and not just Trump, Trump and his Trumpy governors and, and whatnot around the country. Well, I, and the result of that was a massive number of people dying, you know, a half a million people dying. The scientists look I at this and said at least 400,000 of these people didn't have to die if Trump hadn't tried this as essentially his reelection strategy. What I'm missing here, Dan, is the piece of your argument that says that that the economy, what, what are you saying? The economy's back to normal because CNN doesn't have a death count anymore? By the way, they did this no, morning. They had a death count on the morning give me, show. Give me a second, Tom. I'll let you know what I'll say here, please. I'm just saying I live in a blue state. I live, you know, in Jersey. 
it's not been fun. I run a bar, so you can imagine, you know, what I've been through with all this. And I'm, you know, I'm not happy about any of it. But I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, it's not all one way on this. It's both ways. And, and sometimes when I watch or listen to some of the media that I listen to, like Randy Rhodes and yourself, it's just like, you know, I. So it, it doesn't. Even, Dan, I'm sorry. I only have 30 seconds else. here before we hit yeah, a break. Let me just real quickly. Of course. I'm arguing that the reason Rand Paul and these guys are promoting vaccine hesitancy is because they want to keep the economy off balance. What's your okay. counter? One, 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 okay, because if you remember, Cuomo said he wasn't going to trust the vaccine. Did he not? You know, whatever was said at some weird point yeah, in the no, past he, he is that. not it's what's not going weird. on right now. Not, just because it doesn't fit the narrative doesn't make a weird comment. No, I don't Sorry, remember Cuomo saying he doesn't trust the vaccines. I don't well, remember that, Dan. Vaccine. Look it up. He did. But again, yeah, he maybe he did sometime back past. But I'm talking about right now. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. So you think I'm crazy? You know, I see this as part of the Republican election strategy, encouraging death and disease. Tom Harvin here with you and Larry in L.A. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hey, that open letter from Trump humping retired generals and admirals, you should look it mm-hmm. up and uh, actually go through and start reading it. It's full of outright lies, Trump lies, Republican lies. In essence, they're accusing Biden of reversing Trump's executive orders, and they're basically trying to call Biden's executive orders illegal. Uh, it, it's just full of nothing but lies, and it's obvious that it, it sounds like it was actually written by uh, Sean Hannity or, or somebody else at, at Fox News. Probably uh, was. It, it really does. I mean, you like know, not necessarily a Fox News, letter. but it was. It is nothing probably. Yeah, actually, it says that uh, I've got the article here about it, and I the thought article. it said who wrote the first letter. draft of it. And uh, I'm going to track that down and read it, but. This got Boinkin in it, you know, who, who the guy, you know, the anti-Muslim guy. He's now the executive director of the Family Research Council, which is one of the more notorious hate groups in the United States. It's got uh, John Poindexter on it, who, you know, was convicted actually of crimes in the Iran-Contra affair. I think he might have been pardoned by George Herbert Walker Bush. Army Brigadier General Dan Baldock, who is running for the U.S. Senate from New Hampshire. Oh, the, it was organized by retired Army Major General Joe Arbuckle, a Vietnam vet. He acknowledged the partisan nature of the effort is not normal. This is in a conversation with Politico, but defended it as necessary, giving what's at stake. So this Again, is scary what stuff. I, what, I, what I would uh, encourage everybody to do is make the Republicans own their record. They have given us mm. 18 recessions in their last 17 presidential terms. They've given us 10 recessions in the last 68 years and four recessions in their last four presidential terms. We need to make them own that and we need to make them own the fact that they are the GOP Confederate fascists of America and we need to let them know how is it that they think that Donald Trump would win an election after 500,000 American deaths and 8 million jobs lost in one presidential term and a recession on top of it. Why would they I think, think they're proud of all this stuff, Larry. 
I think that what you have is an authoritarian death cult. They will follow this guy. You know, if he says jump off the cliff, they'll jump off the cliff. And some of them have. Um, this is what they, Liz they Cheney do. keeps trying to point out. They view COVID as a, a, a war of attrition against minorities in America. That's what they, that, I that's agree. Why they love it so much. I agree. That was the whole thing around April 7th. I've, I've, you know, I've talked about it. I've written about it several times. You know, in that week after uh, April 7th was the day that the New York Times, the Washington Post and all of the television media reported for the first time that the majority of people who were dying from COVID were black and more likely to die than white people, and that virtually all of the COVID deaths were happening in blue states with, with uh, Democratic governors. And that was the, and they, that was the week been, uh, that yes. the Trump administration decided to stop doing anything about COVID. Back to you, Larry. Sorry. They have been fighting this war of attrition ever since Lee Atwater told us that oh, yeah. instead of using racist terms in the past, uh, they, they now can just say tax cuts because tax cuts That's hurt right. minorities more than it does whites. It hurts whites and minorities, but because it hurts minorities more, then they're willing to fight that war of attrition also to try to get rid of the, the minorities in America. Yeah, I'm with you, Larry. I'm completely with you. Larry, thank you for the call. Diane in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Diane, what's up? How's Hi, my Tom. old hometown? Well, I think the Republicans here in Michigan are trying to cancel the fact checkers. Oh, yeah. They've got a bill yeah. in the House that they want to pass. It's called the Fact Checker Registration Act. And if you claim you're a fact checker and you're not registered, it's a $1,000 fine. Am I remembering that right, Diane? Yes. And you have to take out proof of a fidelity fund worth at least a million dollars. Oh, really? In case someone wants to sue you. Because you have oh, to pay yeah, all yeah, the court yeah. costs if you lose. So, so only rich people are eligible for fact checkers to be yes. to become fact checkers. Yes. That and it would is... affect the international fact check network is what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Okay, thank you Diane for the report from Michigan. I mean it just gets weirder and weirder, right? This is this is welcome to the GOP. Vincent in Carson City, Nevada. Hey Vincent, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi Tom. Yeah, I wanted to agree with you wholeheartedly what you said about we need to get tough and speak out, bringing up Jim Jordan of Ohio, you know, get loud mm -hmm. like that. We have to do that. Being calm and collected it just doesn't work. People need passion. Do yeah. you remember what I wish you would do a lot more? Do you remember what you did? Your screener didn't remember, but a couple of months ago, you finally did it. I've been thinking about this for decades, and you finally did it. You called this guy out. He was so wacko and so out there that you actually said, you're too stupid to talk to, bye, and you hung up on him. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> I vaguely, yeah, I do. You know, it's... You've got to do a lot more of that. Because these people <laughs> are so far <laughs> out there, they got to be held accountable. Take them to task. Yeah. Them yeah, well, the thing, my, my principal thing, and I think this is what you're agreeing with me about on Vincent, is that, it, you know, it's not callers to this show. It is the Democratic politicians need, somebody needs to go to Washington, D.C. and teach these guys theater. You know, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates. I mean, these guys know how to do political theater. Donald Trump, he knows how to do political theater. There are a couple of Democrats who are pretty good at political theater. Bernie Sanders is one of them. But there's nowhere near enough. And there are no Democrats. 
Democrats, as far as I can tell, in leadership, Nancy Pelosi actually can occasionally do brilliant political theater, actually. But Chuck Schumer always seems to be just reading a speech or kind of bumbling around. I've never seen him really, you know, pounding his fist and saying, you know, he just needs to start. So, you know, I used to make a joke about back, I think it was during the Bush administration, about how somebody needs to get Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, intercept his testosterone delivery to his uh, governor's mansion in California and go shoot up some Democrats with it. You know, that sounds kind of sexist and I'm just, you know, I'm not going to, you know, go down that road anymore. It was funny at the time. It's not really funny anymore. But the point that Democrats need to get a spine, they need to get some outrage, they need to get some theater going, I think stands. Vincent, thank you. Thank you. I agree with you. Alex in Orange, New Jersey. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind? Hey, I mean, I hate to be the materialistic guy in the bunch. I voted for Biden. Go for it. Okay. Doesn't matter. What do you have to say? No, what I have to say is, Every time I got a text notification for a donation to my to the 11th District of New Jersey, to Biden, to Cory Booker, I gave. And then we were promised a state and local tax deduction to be restored because Trump took it off on the 2017 tax bill. So my right. question is, I'm all inclusive as a Democrat. And now I see Bernie Sanders coming out in Axios saying that we don't deserve to have our state and local tax deduction back, that we should be yeah. double taxed while corporations are not. You know what? We have enough wars with Republicans that we don't need to be fighting each other. So that man who's I agree. not a registered Republican. I, I agree up. with you, Alex. I agree with you, Alex. Well, I absolutely agree with well, you that, you that the Democrats need to undo that salt tax exemption. Bottom line here is that if you live in a high tax state, you know, where I think the average home value in Oregon now is around $450,000 and somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, you might pay $10,000 a year in property taxes. And on top of that, you might pay a couple thousand dollars a year in income taxes. And your limit now in federal deductibility is 10 grand because of what Trump did to try to screw people in these high tax states. And there are Democrats who are saying, and other people who are saying, oh, it's only rich people who are gonna be affected by this. No, it's gonna be, it's the upper middle class, no doubt about that but you know that's a lot of democratic voters and it was done specifically to hurt democratic voters i'm with you alex and it was done specifically to hurt those states that have these high taxes like california and new york listening to tom hartman visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives and they have high taxes because they're offering you know high quality of life infrastructure and good schools and things like that to their people and republicans want to punish that as well come on let's tell the truth about this Quinn in Seattle. Hey, Quinn, what's on your mind? So for a long time, I've been kind of a crusader against neoliberalism. <laughs> I think it's always been a problem in the Democratic Party. And I would even go as far to say that during the Reagan years and the Clinton years, even, you know, the neoliberals were really giving a lot of ground to the conservatives that they didn't have to give, but that somehow they thought it was like on an ideological basis that that they agreed with them or something. And I feel like we still haven't reckoned with that as progressives, with the neoliberals that are even still in leadership in the party. 
So that was what yeah, I was well, thinking it's about. Still, it's about half the Democratic Party is still enamored of neoliberalism. Well, and, and, of course, all of the Republican Party. Okay. I guess I actually had a question for you as a progressive, as a fellow progressive. What do you think we should do about it? I believe I think that... that Louise was sharing an article with me yesterday about how Republicans all across the country are running for school boards and they're getting Republican candidates in at school boards. Democrats need to be getting people on school boards. They need to be getting them on city councils. They need to be getting them in county government. They need to be getting them absolutely everywhere and thus providing a farm team, a basis, a group of people who have demonstrated their ability to get out there in front of a group of people and give a good speech and be viable candidates who are genuine progressives who they can then start putting in primaries to challenge neoliberal Democrats, the same way that AOC challenged, uh, what's his name, you know, the neoliberal Democrat who was number three in leadership in the Democratic Party that she replaced. I mean, th- there's a formula for doing this, and it's, it's happened a lot. I mean, there, there have been a bunch of progressive Democrats who have primaried neoliberal, so-called moderate or so-called corporate Democrats in the last year or two or three or four successfully. And the party is shifting in that direction, but it has to be built from the bottom up. It's not a matter of sitting around and complaining about it. That's not going to do any good. We need to get people, you know, Quinn, if you think that you have any capability of running for office or if you want to support progressives who are running for office, you know, call up your Seattle Democratic Party and just say, when's your next meeting? I'd like to show up. Odds are it'll be on Zoom. You won't even have to leave your house. That's how you do it. I mean, that's how yeah, the Republicans no, did it. That's that's what they're doing. They build it from the bottom up. And it's what it's Democrats used to and, do. And the Democrats need the long game. And I think we've, we neglected it for too long. Absolutely. And we need to build that infrastructure. And it literally starts with things like school boards. And the Republican Party is putting tens of millions of dollars into getting their people on school boards, for God's sake. You know, because those school board people are the people who then run for city council, and then they run for state legislature, and then they run for the U.S. House of Representatives, and then they end up running for president. I mean, that's, it. literally, that's the path. And we need to get started with it. Quinn, thank you. Excellent question. And we will continue our conversation, so stick around. Tom Harmon here with you, and let's see here, Pete in Newport, Oregon. Hey, Pete, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to disagree with you about saying that independents are not independent, and I think you're hurting... I'm not saying all are not independent, but I think the majority of people who, who tell pollsters that they are independents uh, actually probably 70, 80, 90% of the time vote for one party or the other. They, they really have a strong preference for one party or the other. Well, then that could be. But like I, for example, I'm pro-gun, but I'm also pro-public land. I was a big Bernie supporter. I really, really didn't want Biden. I voted for Obama. I voted for Trump. And then I voted for Biden this time because that, I feel like, was the right decision at this time, just as I thought Trump was the right decision as a small business owner, thinking all of his Made in America stuff you know, was going to be real. You believed his so, BS. Yeah, I get it. But I get it. Yeah, yeah but, that happened to a lot of Americans. There's Pete. two people. Anytime there's there's two people that have never been president, you have to go off 
what they say, and it's a gamble. You know, when yeah. when somebody's been in office, you know what they've done, which was why. No, I get it. And, and I have, you know, I have friends who voted for Trump the first time in 2016. And because, you know, Trump was saying we're going to stop the insane trade deals. You know, Bernie's been saying that forever. Sherrod Brown's been saying that forever. But, you know, Hillary Clinton had not been saying that. So there were people going, OK, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Trump was saying, I'm going to get you cheaper health care than Obamacare and it'll be just as good. In fact, it'll be better. OK, cool. I'd love to see that. Trump was saying we're going to raise the minimum wage. Trump was saying we're going to raise taxes on rich people. He said, you know, it's going to I'm going to lose friends. My friends are going to hate me over over this. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, people voted for him in 2016. You know, I get that. If your point is, Pete, that there are some people who are independent, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'm going to move along. Thank you for the call. Sharon in Burnsville, Minnesota. Hey, Sharon, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for being there. I just am noticing something as I get older. When I was younger, my parents were of Democratic ideals, and they moved into a Republican state. The friends told them that if they said they were Republican, they'd probably get a job, otherwise they might not. I was back from my mother's funeral, talked to another friend, she said it's still the same case. So now we're seeing this higher up, where now the congressmen are hard, hard fought to stand against something because they might be smeared too by their Republican Party, number one. And number two, as a Democrat, I have family who vote Republican only on one issue because of abortion. So we need to voice the fact that we're not for abortion if you're a Democratic voter, but we want people to have the right over their choices of their own body. And if they're going to keep that baby and adopt it out, then we need to have ways to help the parents do that or ways to help the mother keep a baby. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you said it very well. And, you know, Bill Clinton actually used to say this well, you know, that we want to reduce the number of abortions. And the most effective way to do that is not to outlaw abortions. That just causes women to get illegal abortions and more of them to die. The most effective way to do that is to promote birth control the widespread availability of birth control, and teach good, honest sex education in our schools. And Republicans oppose both those things. And therefore, they're driving up the rate of abortion. And Democrats used to say that out loud. And, you know, they haven't been Uh saying that so much. And and, and I think you're right. I think that there there are these single-issue voters or largely single-issue voters. I totally get it. Sharon, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Steve in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for bringing up this issue of where we are headed. And I could recommend to your wife and everyone who's interested in reading about how Hitler and his boys took over this other book, nonfiction, called In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. It's about the U.S. ambassador to Germany in Berlin with his family and how they gradually realized the horrors of Nazism. Now, getting back to your question, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, I can be a social chameleon, so I talk to Trumpers, and they think I'm one of them. And mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but a percentage of Trumpers are winner take all, uber bullies. And they have already started what they see as Confederate Insurgency 2.0. And these are hunters, loggers, people who see killing other things as fun and sport and necessary. And many of them have said to me that progressives like us are like what a religious fanatic during a holy war 
Lucifer would describe infidels and non-believers. In other words, right, we're the prey. We They're the predators. Be, right. We should be eradicated. Yeah, yeah and, I get it. I get it. Thank you for your point and thanks for the reference. I, I appreciate it. Patrick in Lakewood, California. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was on Sirius XM. I'm and I heard you express the idea that we have to uh, pass the HR1 and uh, the voter right. act. The Otherwise, we're screwed. Uh, so, what's your did point? A really good piece on this that even if it does pass, it goes to a Supreme Court that John Roberts, eight years ago, passed what we had. What worked? I know. And I know. he's just there saying, come on, bring it on. I know Maybe. What to do with it. It's entirely possible, too, that John Roberts feels chastened. I mean, John Roberts has been, quote, moving to the left. I would not characterize it that way, but it certainly is characterized that way by Republicans. Republicans are very unhappy with John Roberts right now. John Roberts has been the outlier in a lot of these decisions. The question is not about John Roberts, Patrick. I, you know, I saw Rachel segment, and she's absolutely right that John Roberts is the guy who is most responsible for gutting the Voting Rights Act. And it was a terrible, terrible decision. And whether it was done as John Roberts' partisan hack or whether John Roberts really lives in such a bubble that he believed that because we elected a black man as president, there was no more racism in America. I don't know. Well, don't but, forget but, he has but the, backup on that court. We need but that's my point. That's where I was going. Now you've got these three Trumpies on there. And yeah, it's going to be a real challenge. It's going to be a real fight. And you've also, you know, Biden's commission to look at redoing the court now has some people on it from the Federalist Society who've been stacking the courts. And so it's getting more and more complex. But that means we don't stop fighting Patrick. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're reading today from the history of World War II, Armed Services Memorial Edition. It's written by Francis Trevelyan Miller and the U.S. military with the Board of Historical and Military Authorities by Universal Book and Bible House in 1945. And this is from the chapter, The Phenomenon of Hitler. 
Uh, it starts out, his father was Alois Schickelgruber, the illegitimate child of a peasant girl who bore his mother's name until he was 40. Alois started out as a shoemaker's apprentice. Conscripted into the army, he rose to the rank of sergeant. That was so much above a mere cobbler, he stayed with the army for 15 years. After his discharge, he received a so-called certificate appointment that made him a minor customs official with the Imperial Civil Service. He had worked up to what seemed to him high above the scorned class of common people, the peasants, and the poor little working men. That trait had its influence on his son, Adolf. Alois Schickelgruber married three times. His first wife, 14 years older than he, divorced him. While his first marriage was still valid, another girl, Franziska Matzelsberger, bore him a son, Alois. Schickelgruber married her after his divorced wife died. Two months after their marriage, she bore him a daughter, Angela. One year later, his second wife died. Ten months thereafter, he married Clara Poltzel, who was his junior by 23 years. He was 47 then and had, in the meantime, changed his name to a painted legacy to Hitler. From his third marriage sprang five children, of whom three died in infancy. The two surviving were Adolf and Paula. Adolf Hitler's half-brother, Alois, ran away from home, complaining about cruel treatment by his father. He worked as a waiter in England, married an Irish girl, treated her cruelly, and begot a son, William Patrick Hitler. After Adolf came to power, Alois returned to Germany, leaving wife and son behind and became a prosperous innkeeper. Adolf's half-sister, Angela, also followed him to Germany from Austria to care for his households in Munich and Berchtesgaden. She was the mother of unhappy Krit Agel Rubal, the girl who is said to have committed suicide after becoming enamored of her uncle Adolf. His sister, Paula, considered a queer person, lived a troublesome life in Vienna, and became an ardent Nazi. William Patrick Hitler broke away from the Hitler clan and came with his mother to the United States to fight against the world's scourge of Nazism. This young man, imbued with the spirit of freedom inherited from his liberty-loving Irish mother, joined the United States Navy. The historians of this volume held confidential talks with Hitler's nephews, some of which can be related here. He placed before us official documents, which threw light on the background of Adolf Hitler. He told us about the years when he lived with his uncle at Berchtesgaden, the conduct and habits of the Fuhrer. How in his mountain retreat, the most strongly fortified in the world, Hitler planned and plotted world conquest. The nephew related to us the secrets of the mysterious Rudolf Hest and the Ernst Putzi Hofstengegel, who fled to England, the latter being held prisoner in Canada and later coming to the United States. Letters were submitted to document the facts. These are books in themselves, which undoubtedly will be revealed in future years. It is sufficient to state here that young Patrick Hitler fled from Berchtesgaden when he became convinced that his uncle, Adolf, was suffering from delusions of grandeur and a messianic complex which endangered his own nephew's life as well as Germany and the whole world. Having disposed of a thousand of his intimates, Adolf Hitler's own family was not safe from attack. He would break into his nephew's room in the midnight hours to rant about how he would conquer the world. As a child, he was as difficult as Alois, his father. Father Alois was a tyrannical egoist with a mania for cruelty. Young Adolf liked to rage in rabid oratories, audience or no audience. His father called him daffy and lazy. He wanted his son to become an important personage like himself. But 11-year-old Adolf revolted against going to school and exposing himself to the heavy task of book learning. He hated his teachers. He hated his schoolmates. Faced by the odious realities of life as they were fearfully represented to him by a father with a big stick and an inclination for alcohol, Adolf wanted only to escape. He was 13 at the time of his father's death and 19 when his mother died. 
Of the six years between those two events, little is known about the boy's doings, except that he prevailed upon his mother to take him out of the hated secondary school, and that she encouraged him in his hobby of making drawings until his ego became inflated to the point that he believed himself a genius. He lived on his mother's pension until her death. With his mother and her income gone, the escapist days were over. He had to face life. A misfit, uneducated, arrogant, undeveloped in mind, stubborn and quarrelsome, without any moral concepts. Such was young Adolf Hitler when he entered Vienna in the beginning of 1909. Here his ego was deflated for the first time. He could not even pass his entrance exams to the Academy of Arts. His drawings were considered crude imitations, counterfeits. When a jury at the Academy of Munich refused a painting he submitted for exhibition, he stormed back to inquire who composed the jury. He learned that among them was a Jew who ranked as one of the outstanding masters of German art. At once, he blamed the jury's decision to exclude his work upon this Jew, declaring, they shall pay for this. Precipitated from vainglory, Hitler woke to find himself an obscure outcast. In his despair, he stooped so low in his own estimation as to take up work as an unskilled laborer. To carry mortar on scaffolding was far beneath his dignity. He had not yet conceived the idea that Providence had chosen him to be the leader of the master race, the history of World War II. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Jack in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today? Well, I'm thinking uh, Memorial Day is coming up, and we should remember what the greatest generation fought for. They fought the Aryan supremacists. They fought dictatorships around the world. And we see that rising here now. So let's respect their sacrifice and pay attention to this and stand up against it in any way we can. Because that's what these people are, really. They're just a new version of Nazism. Yeah. You know, Arnold Toynbee is said to have said that when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. First of all, the greatest generation has largely died out, which was my father and mother, you know, my parents. And the people who remember the greatest generation are now in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And we're starting to die out. And so the generation that's coming up, you know, the Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, et cetera, have literally no recollection of the great generation. Uh, The great generation, you know, the World War II generation is as real to them as were the people who fought in the Civil War or the Revolutionary War. In other words, they just come out of a textbook. And so it's a tough pitch to make. It doesn't have quite the emotional punch that that it would have 30 years ago, Jack. But I completely get what you're saying. Yeah, but you should have your you should read I think the January 29th story in the Guardian about how Trump has been cultivated by Moscow for 40 years and he's oh, so yeah. stupid he didn't even realize it but it's a January 29th issue of the Guardian it's a short article I think you should read that on the air sometime. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Thank yeah. you very much for the call. Yes, Dean in Pomona, good. Kansas. Hey Dean, what's on your yep. mind today? Hello. How are you doing today? Good. Um, Okay, yeah, I, um, I've been following what you're saying here right along. You've been just answering every question that, that I've been saying. But anyway, I'm a 50-year-old white guy, and I don't get the need for white privilege. I wish I didn't have it, but I can't get rid of it. <laughs> but anyway, I would like to know, I'd like for you to explain a little bit, like how the dictatorships that we have, the Philippines and the Duterte's in Poland and stuff like that, how did, they, how did their democracies die and get into what they are now? Because 
because we're on those same paths, and this is what I can't get a soul around me that I know to even open their eyes to, you know, yeah. how fragile yeah. this democracy is. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, Dean. And at the risk of sounding self-serving, and I really don't mean this this way, like I'm not trying to sell a book here, but the last book that I published is called The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. And right. it's about how this thing happens. And it almost always starts with rich people corrupting the political process. And then they yep. once they have embedded themselves in the political process, and, we, and you can see this today, you've got a network of right-wing billionaires who have more employees, more offices, and a larger budget than the entire Republican Party, and they are essentially dictating the Republican Party's policies. It's what used to be called the Koch Network. It's now much larger than that. So basically, that's where it starts. And then and then they use whatever tools are most effective at seizing power and putting their toadies in power. And race is low-hanging fruit, right? It's cheap stuff. It's easy to call out to people and say, I mean, this is why literally parts of this billionaire network are funding Spanish language radio to tell Spanish-speaking Americans that black people are, you know, the whole reparations pitch is to try to get Hispanics to pay taxes so that money will go to black people. You know, this is the same pitch that white people were hearing 20 years ago. It's like they they're continually using race as a tool to divide people because they know that as long as we're divided, we're not going to unite against this very, very small number, this less than 1% of us who own most everything and want to keep it that way. And that's what it comes down to. It, it comes down to essentially class warfare, if you want to call it that. It, it comes down to this extraordinarily brutal stuff. And it's just... It's amazing. Anyhow, I, uh, Dean, thank you for the call. Eric in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We got a little less than a minute, Eric, to the end of the hour, the end of the show. I'm trying to say this real fast. Am I just looking at things from rose-colored glasses, or does it seem like Joe Biden is uh, playing a long game with Joe Manchin, you know, um, where you know, his approval rate is up to 63% now, and do you think Joe Manchin will ever come on board? That's it. I do. Yeah, I do. And I think you're right. I think that the way that Biden is playing this is, number one, do the stuff that people want. Number two, promise people the stuff that they want. Number three, bring Joe Manchin in by saying, I'll make you part of this big thing. And he had a meeting with Joe Manchin, and we have not heard a peep out of Joe Manchin since then. I take that as a good sign. (laughs) So we'll see, Eric. We'll see. Thanks a lot for the call. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget... Democracy is not a spectator sport. As Bernie used to say all the time on this program, it is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Seriously. Contact your local Democratic Party and ask how you can get involved. In addition to all the great groups out there, tag your it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and those around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 